Let me read you a quote, and then I'll pray. Preaching for me is a, uh, a daunting task, and the uh, purpose for which I don't want to take lightly or take for granted. And I was reading a book on preaching this week, and this quote summarizes how I feel about it. John Piper in Expository Exaltation says, I am not interested in entertaining my people or merely persuading them of doctrinal truth. The devil is more accomplished in entertainment and doctrine than I am, and, he does, and it does him no good. Nor does he do any good by it. I do not want to devote my life to doing what the devil does and does even better than I. What the devil cannot do is see the glory of Christ as supremely beautiful and supremely valuable. He cannot savor the beauty, his beauty above all things, and he cannot live to make it known. But that is why the universe exists, why the church exists, why corporate worship exists, and why preaching exists. Apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit, this purpose for worship and preaching will fail. Apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit, this purpose for worship and preaching will fail. I will have failed. We will have failed, apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit this morning in the text and in the preaching. So let me pray. Lord, I admit this morning that I am utterly powerless to display your glory. I am utterly powerless to reveal Christ to your people. And yet it has pleased you to reveal him in the scriptures, to make him known. And so I pray, Lord, that you would loose my lips to make him known, and that by the power of the Spirit, you would display your value and goodness to us so that we might worship with our lives. Lord, we might turn every moment into worship of Jesus Christ. That we would give of ourselves, give of our time, give of our money, respond in worship in every way. That Christ may be made supreme and his lordship acknowledged here in Smith Falls and even in our own church to a greater degree. So help us, dear Lord, this morning to comprehend this text as being that which exalts Christ above all things. We know that we cannot do this without you. So we invite and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message this morning is Inclusive Church. Inclusive Church. If that doesn't spark some provocation in your mind, um, let me explain why I chose that title and why I think this passage warrants it. How many of you have ever heard of or read the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye? Fairly small number. For context, it was written by a, a man named Joshua Harris and released in 1997. And it basically took youth groups and young adults by storm for the next 10 years or so. Everybody read I Kissed Dating Goodbye because it was all about how to be pure instead of giving yourself away in impurity um, before marriage. It's the Christian view of courtship, okay? And Joshua Harris was, I think, 20 years old when he published this. He became a Christian superstar. He went on to pastor a megachurch. And last month, Joshua Harris apologized 
for how his teaching failed to include the LGBTQ community in the life of the church while simultaneously walking away from his Christian faith and essentially denouncing his life's work and his life's faith. For failing to be inclusive of the LGBTQ community in the life of the church. Um, There is a church in Smith Falls uh, here, which on its website, part of its mission statement is as part of its publicly stated goal, is to become an inclusive community for those living in a variety of moral and uh, sexual lifestyles, including the LGBTQ community, in the life and leadership of the church. This is one of the stated goals of the church. Now, this is done, and I grant, I've spoken to the pastor of that church about this subject, and we're very clear about where we stand, but I grant that this is done in the spirit of Christian charity, and inclusivity, and, 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 a, and the welcoming open arms that um, we perceive Christ and his church to have. But is that the right way? Is that what makes a church inclusive? What makes a church inclusive? Um, inclusivity, I will go so far as to say right now, is the pinnacle and the cornerstone, the mark of modern sensibilities in our culture. Inclusivity is truly the mark of the modern sensibility in our culture. That is to say, individuals, businesses, corporations are literally tripping over themselves to indicate their inclusion of all people. Music festivals will talk about how their greatest achievement is being inclusive of every person. Um, there's a, there's a, um, the library in Perth, I noticed they have two bathrooms, both of which are individual bathrooms, and their signs switched from male and female to all genders bathroom. I mean, these are individual bathrooms. There's never more than one person in them at a time. But to indicate their inclusivity, people and, indiv- and corporations and institutions are tripping over themselves to signal that they are inclusive. This is the mark of the modern sensibility in our culture. That said, I'm not going to climb up on my hobby horse and cry about what's happening in the culture because the church is called to be and designed to be the one truly inclusive institution in the world. The one truly non-biased, non-judgmental, non-partial institution in the world. James said to his hearers in the book of James, uh, do not show partiality to one who comes in finely dressed. Don't give him a good seat while you give a poor person a seat, you know, by your feet in a dishonored place. Paul says regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, do not favor those gifts that are more public and more viewed as prestigious, but show modesty and honor to those more dishonorable parts. Truly, the church is called to be the most open-armed and inclusive institution in the world. So how does that work? How do those two things go together? This passage, I think, shows us Peter's ministry, as I described over these next couple chapters. He's going to disappear at the end of chapter 12 from the book. But what his ministry represents is absolutely critical for our understanding of what the church is and what, the view, what our view of God's kingdom is. What is God's kingdom like and who's in it and who gets to be in it? Peter's ministry is the practical evidence and the embodiment of God's inclusion of non-Jews in his redeemed people. Now, for us, we take that for granted. We've been living with this reality for 2,000 plus years that non-Jews are welcome in the church. But for the first century, the church was founded in Jerusalem. 
It was led by Jews and it was comprised mainly of Jews. It was a Jewish movement at the beginning. And so for these Jews to understand that God was welcoming Gentiles was just mind-blowing. And for us, the parallel is, will God save those people we thought he wouldn't or couldn't save? At the end of our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And that's a celebration of the forgiveness, the washing by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think what I like to do in, in those settings, we examine ourselves, but I also like to imagine who, who are the people in your life that you could never imagine taking communion alongside you and confessing Christ and being washed by his blood. Who is that person that you could never imagine sitting beside you? God can save them. God can save them. Peter had to learn this in this passage, and it's such a beautiful picture. So what happened? Here's a brief synopsis. I had Dean read the entire, the entire story. Peter tells the, the happenings twice. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over the details of what happened. But just to summarize, God sent two visions, one to an observant Jew who had turned to Christ. His name was Peter, and he was an apostle. He had special authority in the early church, as he mentions in this passage, because he saw Christ, he ate with Christ after the resurrection. And the other person who received a vision was a man who feared and worshipped God, but was a Roman, possibly an Italian soldier. No background in Judaism, no background in temple worship, he didn't live far from Jerusalem, but he did not live uh, in any manner a Jewish life. But he was a God-fearing man. Does that ever bend your mind a little bit when you meet somebody who's a God-fearing person who doesn't know Christ? Does that ever bend your mind a little bit? Your little Christ, your, our Christian categories, like what does that mean? What does it mean when somebody fears God and, wa- and wants to know him, but they don't know Christ? What do we do with them? How do we interact with them? Through these visions, these two visions, God... God brought not only the two men together, but two parties. Peter brings with him six brothers and Cornelius invites his friends and family. And they're like, there's like sort of a, not a clash, but there's this big interaction between these two communities. It's not just two men going and having a meeting. There's, there's a congregation gathered at this, uh, at, this, at this meeting point that God sets up. And so God calls Peter, who was in Joppa, which is not far from uh, Caesarea. And this was all, you could travel this in a couple days. And the apostles were used to traveling. It was part of their ministry to strengthen and plant the churches. But Peter was called to go visit this man in Caesarea and to explain the life, work, and the hope of Jesus Christ. Dean read for us, uh, I am to deliver a message by which you will be saved. Cornelius says, what are you doing here? Peter says, I'm about to tell you the message that's going to save you. Talk about an important job. And so upon hearing the message, the spirit just of no one's invitation in the middle of Peter's message falls manifestly on the hearing of the Gentiles and manifests in in tongues, which was similar in Acts chapter 2 when the spirit fell and tongues were uttered. Again, this was a sign that the gospel was being proclaimed and spoken of in languages other than Hebrew other than God's people's language. So the, the works of God are being declared in, in many tongues. And so the Spirit falls as a sign that God was in it, that God was there, he was with his people. And Peter later remembers the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. John came saying, I will baptize them with water, 
but one who is coming who is greater than I. And Peter says, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the sign of the baptism of water was that of repentance. It was an outward sign of one's decisive uh, move to follow God. And then Jesus sends a baptism that seals the believer for eternity. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Spirit is given as a seal, as a seal for the inheritance that is to come. So it's a promise from God that he is with you until the end. That's your baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the promise that God is not going to let you go. It's literally a seal, not to be broken by anyone. It's sealing for salvation. See, water doesn't save us. God does not respond to our water baptism by saying, well, now, I'm, now I save that person because look what they did. He saves us by his work and our baptism is a sign for us and for our, uh, our, our hearers and seers that God has moved in our hearts. Now, a little bit of the background of what's going on here. Peter was dwelling with a Christian, mostly Jewish congregation at Joppa. As I said, Joppa was, uh, if you remember the Old Testament, Jonah went to Joppa to sail to Tarshish to run from God. Joppa was also the port um, that Solomon used to bring in the cedars of Lebanon to build the temple in Jerusalem. It was not far from Jerusalem. It was, it was, a, it was a Jewish uh, influenced city. It was very much incorporated with the Jewish nation and with Jerusalem specifically. Caesarea, by contrast, was not. Caesarea was also on the coast, but Joppa was the only port. It was the only seaport where boats could go in and out and trade could be conducted. Now, Herod, who was given uh, jurisdiction over the Jews from Rome, wanted a port to have access to. The Roman Empire needed places for trade and economic development, but he didn't want to move into Joppa because Joppa was severely anti-Rome. The Jews hated the Romans. Okay, we saw this in Jesus' ministry. There was a very much contrast between Jews and Gentiles and even Jews and Samaritans. There was very anti-Gentile sentiment in Joppa. So Herod said, well, I'm not going to mess with that city. It's a very Jewish city. I'm going to go down to Caesarea. And he conducted a massive construction project where he built a, a sea break. I don't know much about seafaring things, but he built a, you can see I'm just, I'm schooled in this. So he built a sea break that boats could come in and, and would protect obviously shipments and boats. And he made it a distinctly Roman or Gentile city that he could work with economically for trade. And they built uh, Roman architecture. There was amphitheaters there. There were signs of Roman government and law and culture. It was a very distinctly Gentile, non-Jewish city. It was a non-Jewish city. This is the backdrop of where Peter is sent. So Peter's like, yeah, I'll go to Joppa. There's, there's Jews there. I understand them. They understand me. We'll do some ministry together. It'll be great. And then God sends him to Caesarea. Oh, that's a bit of a different town. They don't know my customs. They don't know my God. Why would I go to there? Oh, there's a man. There's a man there who's God-fearing. So he goes to this city, totally devoid of Jewish influence, outside of maybe individuals like this fellow Cornelius, who was a God-fearing man. He prayed. He asked God for help. He tried to live a righteous life. He may have heard of God's law. He may have heard some of the scriptures, but we don't really know. 
We don't really know where this influence comes to desire the Lord. I mean, why, why, why is he reaching out to God? We don't really know. Um, but certainly there are people who acknowledge the existence of God and they, they want their lives to be for him. But what do they need? They need Christ to, to make that a reality for them. And so I want to go through this highlighting about six key verses that's going to tell us the story and what we need to understand. And it falls under three sections of an outline. Number one is that God calls out his people to be separate and holy. God calls out his people to be separate and holy. And he does this by providing laws for diet, culture, sexuality, agricultural, agriculture, family, charity, the list goes on and on and on. If you read the Old Testament, God had laid out an entire culture for the Jews. He called them out of Egypt and then he said, I am going to make you a people. In Exodus 19, he says, he says to Moses, you need to tell Israel, you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I didn't just save you to go wander around and do your own thing. I saved you to be called out, to be like me. So God calls his people to be holy and separate. And he did this through the Mosaic law. So he separated, he distinguished his people. I mean, what were the Jews going to come out? How, who were they going to act like after they got out of Egypt? Egypt. Why wouldn't they act like Egyptians? Egyptian, they bring Egyptian gods, they bring Egyptian culture, they bring Egyptian currency, they bring Egyptian sanitary laws, bring Egyptian agriculture, everything. They would just look like the Egyptians. God said, it's not going to be like that. When I pull you out of Egypt, I'm going to make you a nation unto me. I'm going to make you a distinct nation. That's the story of Israel. And so this vision comes, Peter's hungry, he's waiting for the folks downstairs to make dinner, he's upstairs praying, he's just having his devotions, he's hungry. That's probably happened to you, right? It's like, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to be with the Lord for an hour, and you're like, oh, what's that? I'm hungry. But this was used by God to teach him something critical. There's a vision where all of these animals come down on a sheet, reptiles, birds, all these things, and he's hungry. And God says to Peter in this trance, kill and eat. If you're hungry, go ahead. And Peter looks and he surveys the animals and he says, this is weird. I don't see anything I'm allowed to eat. Have you ever been to a buffet and you're like, oh, I'm on Atkins or I'm on, um, what's that? You know, like this, I cannot eat anything here. You go to somebody's house and they put out a big spread and you're like, oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm on the I'm on the meat and fish diet or whatever it is. You know, like this, it's not going to work. So Peter looks out and he says, what, what's going on here? God has just provided me with everything I'm not allowed to eat. Leviticus 3 says, sorry, Leviticus 11.3 says, whatever parts of the hoove and cloven-footed and choose the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud, or part of the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, it is unclean for you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, it is unclean for you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, it is unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat of these of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Peter knew that. He looks at this sheet and he says, that's everything on this sheet is loaded up with stuff from the Levitical law that says you shall not eat for it is unclean. As I said, God revealed practices for every area of life for the Jews after he redeemed them. 
It made them a distinct nation from false religions and nations that lived in filthy conditions, filthy living practices, filthy morality, filthy worship, child sacrifice to gods, okay? Cult prostitution worship for, for worship of their gods, unsanitary uh, living and, and, and water cultivation, uh, useless and exploitive um, agricultural practices. God gave to the people of Israel an entire means of living not only a holy life, but a very successful and blessed life. Did you see in, in Deuteronomy we read, if you obey the Lord, he will bring fruitfulness to your fields and your herds and the fruit of your womb. God will make you fruitful. There were practical implications for following God's law. A good society, a healthy society. Friends, that is as much true today as it was in the times of Israel. Those communities, countries, jurisdictions that follow and obey the Lord are are blessed in the practical sense. In justice, in production, in law, in culture, there is a cultivation of beauty and goodness for those who follow and fear the Lord. Because we avoid every form of uncleanness. And what we produce is honorable to the Lord and good for humanity. It's so true even today. And so God sets them apart. God says, you're not going to be like the other nations. Isaiah 49.6 says, you will be as a light to the nations. You will be as a light to the nations. Don't worry about that. You will be as a light to the nation. So God had called them out for a very specific purpose and he gave them the means to be the light. He didn't just say, now pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and you know, just get, get rid of all your filthy practice. God said, this is how it's going to be done. Line by line by line through Moses, here's the law, here's the law, here's the law. And then he taught, they taught the law. And the people at the end of hearing the law, they rejoiced. And in times of revival in Israel, every time the law was brought out after, the, after Israel slid away into pagan practices, the law was brought out. And you know what the people did? They rejoiced. When Ezra brought out the law, they rejoiced. When Josiah brought out the law, they rejoiced. They rejoiced to hear the word of the Lord and the calling back to holiness. Doesn't it feel good when you have drifted from the Lord? and you return to his word, and it is like water to your soul, and there's a joy of coming back to God and his ways. When you're sliding from the Lord, and when you feel distant from him, do you come back to his word and say, oh yeah, I forgot how restrictive that was. No, you don't. Your soul rejoices in the word of the Lord. Psalm 119 says, in your law I delight, I meditate on it day and night. Your law is like honeycomb to my tongue. But this vision to Peter is perplexing. It says in the text here, it says he was perplexed. He didn't understand. What do you mean? Peter says, I've never eaten an unclean animal in my life. I'm a Jew and I want to be like you, God. I don't want to do unclean things. I don't want to have a filthy diet. I, I've never done that. And God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. That's in verse 15. And Peter's like, What? What do you mean? These are pigs and reptiles and all the stuff I'm not allowed to eat. Not only not allowed, but they're not designed for me as, as in my community. 
So the, Peter, the, the vision perplexes Peter. But immediately, he says, there came in a knock at the gate. Hey, is Peter living there? And Peter's like, yeah, I am. I just had this vision, but I'm done now. I'll come down and see who it is. And it's the men from Cornelius' camp. And they say, we're looking for Peter. And Peter's like, I'm Peter. And they say, there's a man. His name is Cornelius. You need to come to Caesarea. And suddenly the vision makes sense. See, Peter didn't take the vision and go downstairs and be like, okay, I got, whoa, stop the meal. I just got a vision. We can have pig now. So I'm going to head down to the market and grab some pork chops. And we're just going to, maybe some clam fish, um, you know, lobster tails. We can do all that stuff we weren't allowed to do before. See, for Peter, he knows it's not really about the food. God is saying something bigger and he's using this picture that Peter had to abide by every single day. I mean, dietary restriction was among the most immediate in the laws for Israel to follow. I mean, sacrifice and all those other things and feasts you didn't observe every single day. But food you had to eat every single day. So God uses this immediate vision that was totally pertinent to his daily life. And Peter's like, I don't get it. Why is God so concerned about, like, can I eat? I didn't really understand it. But when a man comes and he's from Caesarea and he's supposed to go, it clicks. Oh, this is about people. This is about people. And so the second part in our outline is that God is the one who purifies us. Now remember, the first part of our outline said that God calls his people out to be holy and to be pure. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God calls his people out to be pure. Second part that we need to understand is that God is the one who makes pure. God is the one who makes pure. See, Israel was given these restrictions as a form of worship and as a form of testimony and reminder of who God was. It did not make them pure. It didn't make them pure. It didn't cleanse them. It didn't It didn't make them acceptable to God. It was given to them as a form of devotion to God, as a form of devotion to his character, as a form of acknowledging and celebrating God's character. We may find that weird because it's restrictive and it's animal sacrifice. How is that joyful? But when you delight in God's holy character, these are forms of your devotion. And so God was concerned for that. So we recognize in this second section that God is the one who purifies us. Do not call common what God has made clean. What God has made clean. So Peter, in verse 28, he says, so, so he hears, there's a guy named Cornelius. He needs to see you, Peter. God sent us. And Peter's like, yeah, I just got a vision too. So as it, God uses the two visions. He brings the people together. And when he shows up, verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. I mean, that's not because they read Leviticus. That's because the Jews wore that on their sleeves. He says, you yourselves know that Jews don't associate with you, right? They're like, yeah, we know that. We've been around Jews. We've seen them. They don't want to associate with us. You know, a lot of them do it out of pride. We're God's people. We're, we're morally spirit. We have the law, right? Read Romans 9 through 11. Jews, we have the law. Pharisees, we have Abraham as our father. We're God's people. Peter reminds them, he says, you, you guys know this because you've felt it. 
We're not supposed to associate with you. That comes from Deuteronomy 7.3. God says, you shall not intermarry with the Canaanites. You shall not intermarry with people who do not fear me. For their children will turn your children away from me. Whether sons or daughters, it's not like, oh, their evil daughters will take your pure sons. No, it said that their children will pull your children away from God, away from worshiping me. And we see that over and over in scripture. And friends, we see that over and over in our lives. Paul says in one of the Corinthian books, bad company corrupts good morals. Oh, doesn't that sound like such an old Baptist phrase? Now keep yourselves pure. All right, your good morals are going to be polluted. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. But, but God gives practical and accessible means of retaining our spiritual heritage. If you are a believer and you desire to pass on the faith of Christ and the confession of Christ to your children, why would you divide your home into two spiritual camps? which are opposed with one another. This is a principle, my friends, that stands today that God says, don't intermarry with those who do not fear me. Not because they're not as good as you, but because they will corrupt you. And not even because they want to corrupt you, but because that's how we work as humanity. We always slide from purity to impurity. That is the story of humanity. So protect yourselves. Leviticus 18, just after Moses gives the the laws for sexual purity, which include uh, the abomination of all sorts of um, pansexual expressions. Paul says, sorry, Moses says in Leviticus 18, 24, for by these sexual perversions, all the nations I am driving out from before you have become unclean. Do none of these abominations, neither the native nor the sojourner. So anyone who's with you, you need to avoid and, and abstain from these sexual perversions. In other words, I am moving these nations out from before you. I'm going to let you into their land. Canaan was occupied. It wasn't just a nice, beautiful, vacant part of property that was like, oh, that's good. We'll move in there. They had to drive out other nations, but God said they have become unclean. These nations practice every form of filthiness. And I want you to be a light to the nations. I want to establish you in the land and I want you to live as unto me and you'll be a light to the nations. Friends, here's, here's the deal. God was not racist. God did not prefer the Jews. Does that violate the Old Testament text? I don't think so. None of you shall practice these abominations, either the native or the sojourner. In other words, no matter who is with you, from any other nation, if they have accepted me, they are bound by these same laws. I desire to set them apart as much as any other. He called out Israel to be a light to the nations. He didn't call out Israel because they were mighty in number. He says this explicitly in other parts of the Old Testament. I didn't call you out because you were a great nation. I didn't call you out because you were so gifted and so wonderful. I called you out to demonstrate because you were weak that I am your Lord. I took a weak nation to prove to the world that I am the Lord. He didn't prefer the Jews. He preserved the Jews for worship. God did not prefer the Jews. He preserved the Jews 
through worship. Which meant that intermarriage and alliances and covenants with other nations, interlocking alliances, generally polluted Israel. How often is it when you lock arms with somebody who has no intention of following the Lord, do you stay strong? It is so not common. It's so not common. We, we lock arms with those who are going the same direction. Unless two be agreed, how can they walk in the way together? The scriptures say, friends, this is so true of us. Be on guard for this. Not to be as a Jew and turn our noses up at people who don't love the Lord. That is not remotely the thrust of the passage. In fact, the thrust of the passage is the opposite. But think of this, especially in regard to your children. Are your children locking arms with and sharing lives with those who are going a totally different way, hoping that the light of your children's witness will somehow pull the ungodly into the light? My friends, our children are our greatest responsibility and protection to give them the fear of the Lord. That's an aside. But here, Peter is saying, I, I, I can't understand why God would ask me to step over these commands. He's asking me to step over these commands. But then he learns. Verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And so he says, it's not lawful for me to, uh, to be here, guys. But when I saw this trance, when I saw this vision, and when you guys came, I came without objection because God showed me not to call anybody unclean. See how the thrust of the passage is opposite? God calls out his people absolutely to be holy. But what is the thrust of God's intention? Don't call any person unclean or unholy if I have sent you to them. Peter says, therefore, I came without objection. This is not God setting aside the Mosaic law and saying, oh, that was, that's the way I used to do things. Now I got Jesus, man. Jesus is like, hey, I'm cool, guys. I can just, all that old law stuff, don't worry about it. You just come to me and I'll, I'll, set, you, I'll set you right. God did, did not set aside the Old Testament and its moral demands. He fulfilled them in Christ. Why? Because Cornelius says, well then tell us what you've come to tell us. What have you come here for? What's this all about? And so Peter opens his mouth and he starts speaking and relating to these Gentiles, that he has never done this in his life. He's never fathomed this in his life. I mean, in, in, in the rare circumstances, someone like Jonah was sent to Gentiles in Nineveh. It's not a normal pattern. God is most often sending prophets to his own people to call them back. But now God is sending from his people prophets to the nations. And so God doesn't ask Peter to partake in uncleanness. But he shows them, he shows Peter that he has made it clean. He doesn't ask Peter to partake in uncleanness, but shows him that he has cleansed it. And so God shows that his means of creating purity in people have been ultimately effective and ultimately established through, you know the word, Jesus Christ. So God has called his people out to be holy, He's made high demands of morality, but he has also effected and drawn that out and accomplished it through Jesus Christ. So Peter opens his mouth and he shares the gospel. He shows no partiality, but that in every nation, 
anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him is pleasing to the Lord. And the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through who? How do you have peace? Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea. And beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John that was proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. What's the message that Cornelius needed to hear? That God sent an anointed one to make peace for all nations to the Lord God, the Holy One, the Creator, the Judge. So how do these two things uh, reconcile Were the scriptures broken because Peter was asked to step over this command? No, Jesus says in John 10, 35, the scriptures which can never be broken are not set aside or violated, but they are satisfied and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 22 gives us the clearest picture of this. Speaking in terms of Jews and Gentiles, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that separated the two men, pictured here by Cornelius and Peter, Two men, once separated by a dividing wall of hostility, one belonging to the Lord, one belonging to the world or Satan. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, God has broken down the dividing wall. And how did he do it? How did he break down the dividing wall? Through new legislation? Through new anti-racism laws? He did it by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 22 says. He took away the dividing wall by the blood of Christ. And so here's what we learn about God in his call to to sanctify and make holy his people. Number three in our outline, Jesus is both the standard for holiness. He's the measure of every man. And he is also God's way to make us holy. Jesus is both the lofty, perfect standard for humanity and he is God's means of achieving that in you and me. Has Leviticus been set aside? Has God's standard for sexuality and purity been set aside? Absolutely not. They have been made available through Christ. They have been effective in your heart and life through Christ. Jesus is both the standard for holiness and he is God's means of making you holy. What an amazing amount of good news that is. That God is still holy. That God still demands perfection. That God even sent that perfection into the world to be among us. The light shone in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it, John says. But he is also the means by which the world can be made holy and is made holy. So why does Cornelius need Peter? He needs to hear and understand that God makes pure through Jesus Christ and through no other means. The blood of Christ, which was shed on the cross, Peter describes as the ultimate blood. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but he raised him, God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to us, the apostles, who have been chosen by God as a witness, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We need to see this through a lens of of the Jew. And so for that, I want you to just look at Hebrews chapter 8. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Sorry, it's Hebrews chapter 9. But we need to understand the significance of what Peter is saying here. Hebrews chapter 9, verses uh, 8 through 10. 
This is speaking of the whole Old Testament law, the whole, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial system. For by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. That's speaking of the tabernacle. According to this arrangement, according to the old system of ceremonial law, gifts and sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. The sheet with all the animals, dietary restrictions, none of those observances could cleanse the worshiper in their conscience. None of those things made a person right before God. None of the observances of the Jewish nation made them right before God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made through hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption for the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, speaking of the Old Testament system, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, now this, purify our conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. That is the gospel. Look at Leviticus. Look at the ceremonial washings, the sprinkling of blood, the animal sacrifice. Look at that and recognize that the conscience of the worshiper cannot be perfected. They longed for acceptance before God, but they did not achieve it through the washing of their hands or the sprinkling of the blood of goats. But when Christ came, he entered God's presence by means of his own blood and secured eternal salvation for you and me and cleansed our conscience. Friends, if you are in Christ, your conscience is cleansed from sin. Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he cleansed us. There is an effective washing and cleansing from your sin that God achieved through Jesus Christ. The same is true for the Jews and the same is true for Cornelius a man who had no tie to the Old Testament system. He had no means of proving his faithfulness to God through washings and ceremonies. Righteousness before God has only ever been achieved through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is God's instrument for judging sin. He is the one appointed by God to judge sin. So the message is this, you may sincerely worship God, but your conscience will forever burn until you are washed and perfected by Jesus Christ from your sin. So who can withhold baptism from this? So the spirit falls on Gentiles and Jews alike and the brothers with Peter are amazed. They're like, how does God has accepted them? He sent his spirit. They're with us. They have the same spirit. We're one church. And then there were some who criticized who weren't there. They were like, oh, Peter went and violated the Jewish law. And Peter says, hang on. You need to hear the whole story. I saw a vision and then I met Cornelius' friends. And then when they heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them in the same way that it fell on us. And then it says they fell silent. They were like, really? You mean this is what God is doing? This is how God is achieving salvation? They don't have to go to the temple 
and meet a priest and sacrifice a bull or pigeons or anything? God just gives his spirit when people come to Christ? Yes. God grants redemption through repentance. My friends, how does this tie into inclusivity? How is the church inclusive? The church is open-armed for those who repent and embrace Christ as Lord. The church does not baptize sin. The church does not take the sin of the world and baptize it and say, well, that's not a big deal to God anymore. How often in our time, in our place and culture, is the church taking what is an abomination to God and saying, blunk, doesn't matter anymore. It's not our prerogative. Do not call common what God has made clean. God is willing to wash any filthy sinner in the waters of repentance and welcome them into the church. Some of you have only been in the church for less than a year. And you are as much a part of this church as the old precious saint who has been here for 50. God has accepted you because of Christ. Whatever you did before Christ has been washed and canceled out because of repentance. We don't get to carry our sin into the church and say, well, Jesus accepts me the way I am. Jesus would never tell me to stop. Actually, he did constantly. The church is condemning people to hell by saying your sin has been baptized. You can bring it with you. God understands. God's holiness has not been set aside. It has been achieved in Jesus Christ. It's the most compassionate message in the world. And we rob people of the fruit of a cleansed conscience when we do not tell them to repent. When we do not tell them to turn from sin, we rob them from the cleansing that God offers through repentance. I love this phrase. Oh, I'm on the next page. My, my favorite phrase is near here at the end. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. What's the gift that God gave the Gentiles? A blank check? Live the way you want, you're all included anyway? No, he granted them the gift of repentance that leads to life. So how does the church include a world dying for acceptance before God? We offer them repentance in Christ. There's a reason why it's a narrow gate and a low-hanging ceiling Because to enter the kingdom of God, one must come like a child. One must come on their knees in repentance, acknowledging Christ as Lord. Friends, Christ did not come and fulfill the law and live a pure life so that we could live in our sin. Romans chapter 6 spells this out so clearly. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Christ did not die to no purpose but our baptism demonstrates a deadness to sin and a resurrection to new life. Peter would later write in his own epistle, but you are a chosen race, a holy nation, and a royal priesthood. He wasn't speaking to national Israel. He was taking the old text, speaking of national Israel, and he was importing that into the new covenant of grace and saying, you are God's holy nation. You are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. You belong to God and you are a light to the nations and you have been set aside to demonstrate his goodness. Praise God for that grace. And so what does the church do? We herald the greatest news in the world that God will welcome and include you in the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus Christ. 
That's inclusivity. That's inclusivity. We don't baptize sin. We baptize the sinner into new life. What a precious privilege. So we must, and I'm just closing, we must neither be so narrow and exclusive that we assume God cannot or will not save. We don't look through, through Peter's eyes before this vision and say, well, that's unclean. That's not for me. There are none who are beyond the reach of God. People in every nation are welcome to repent and come to Christ. Nor are we able to baptize sin on God's behalf, citing some vague notion to Jesus. Oh, this is the way Jesus would have done it. We can, we can hang on to this. And as I said, finally, we herald the wonderful news that God will include you because of Jesus, whose blood has cleansed sin. We that, that shedding of blood happened in the past. It's already done. No more blood needs to be shed. Repentance grants you access to that cleansing. Friends, the world is not going to hear this. As much as the world pipes on and drones on about inclusivity and welcoming and acceptance, they will not achieve it and they will not hear about true acceptance in, in God's eyes from anyone but us. Not because we're special, but because we have been given the message of reconciliation. The church has been given this responsibility. And friends, finally, we can worship Christ because he has purified us. He's purified us. So don't look at your sin and say, look how awful I am. Look at the greatness of your Savior who has cleansed you from it and lay it at his feet and recognize that it has already been paid for. We're going to come to the Lord's table now and celebrate and proclaim that death that has brought acceptance to the Jews first, but also the rest of us who were undeserving.